0: Hey, well, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, this is the last time you're going to hear me say open up to 1 Peter for a while, probably a really long while. We are finishing uh, our series called Exiles. Um, So we've been in this all spring. This was our spring sermon series. Uh, We've been tracking through this letter that Peter wrote to Christians who were struggling, Christians who needed encouragement uh, in the first century living in the area of what they then called Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And these Christians were uh, facing persecution because of their faith. They were living in very tumultuous times where the world around them didn't accept the teachings of Jesus. They didn't believe that Christ was the Savior, that He was the true Son of God. And so Peter wrote this letter to encourage these Christians to keep pressing on, to never give up, So keep moving forward, keeping their eyes on the prize of eternal life that Jesus provided for them. And so I hope you've enjoyed walking through verse by verse 1 Peter, and we're going to conclude in these last few verses today. But before we dig into that, I want to pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we look at 1 Peter one last time. Would you pray with me? Jesus... We are so thankful for this letter that you made a part of what we call the Bible. Lord, this letter that Peter wrote 2,000 years ago to Christians in a secular society, in a non-Christian world who really needed encouragement. God, I pray today, whether someone is here for the first time or they've been here throughout this whole study, I pray today, Lord, that we would all be encouraged and that we would all be motivated to leave this place not hoarding our faith to ourselves, but ready to shine bright for Your name in this world so that this world may come to know You. So that the people and the spheres of influence You have placed us may see Your goodness shining through us. That is our prayer. So God, grant us grace as we look at these words and grant us grace and boldness as we leave this place to live out these words. Plant them deep in our hearts today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, very much like the Christians in the first century, in 1940 and specifically on June 4th, 1940, Winston Churchill delivered a very powerful, motivating speech to the House of Commons, the British Parliament, as they were still on the front end of World War II. They were desperately needing encouragement. They needed to know from their leader that moving forward, they could do this. That they could defeat Nazi Germany. That they could attack and overwhelm the enemy. That they could be bold enough. And so Churchill, addressing the House of Commons, said this. He said, We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We, f- we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And that's exactly what they did. They didn't surrender. And as we know today, the Allies, the Americans, the British, and the others were triumphant over the enemy. You know... Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, this is the same mentality that I think Peter had when he wrote this letter. I think he had that wartime mentality. But the war we face is not one of flesh and blood, it's not a physical one. It's really not even against other people, it's a spiritual war. You see, the Bible describes a spiritual conflict that is at war within our own hearts between. Christ and His Holy Spirit, if you know Him, and your sinful flesh, but that also manifests itself in our world in different ways. And so our conflict as believers in this non-Christian world is not with other people. It's with Satan and his spiritual forces, which are very real. And so Paul spoke of this same mentality in Ephesians 6 with, this, with a war analogy. If you look on the screens with me at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, listen, listen to almost the similarities you pick up in what Churchill said as encouragement and that wartime mentality. Paul here in Ephesians 6, he has that same wartime mentality. Listen to what he says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. is writing to Christians who may be weary and worn out in their faith and tempted to just kind of give up. And by giving up, I mean either to give in to the surrounding culture and the pressure from their friends to not live a Christ-like life, obedient to God's Word, to give in, or to kind of retreat. Just isolate yourself so much from society that you never even have the opportunities to be salt and light in this world. You're never even engaging with non-Christians in any way. And so you're never actually winning anyone to the Lord, though you personally may be living a good, quiet Christian life, but you never walk outside and meet your neighbors. You never spend time with people who don't know Christ. You see, both, both of those ways are errors. We don't give in, but we also don't retreat. We don't give up. That's what Paul and Peter are saying to weary Christians in this journey of faith. So yes, there is a great enemy who seeks to devour us, to destroy us. And yes, this world is truly captivated by his schemes, as Paul says. The world, yes, is allied with him. But here's what we know. And here's what we declare, as we already have in song, to each other and to God this morning, that Christ has already won the victory. That Christ is victorious. And now we must live as his people, as his followers, we must live in light of that victory. We must live now and persevere. It's his victory that keeps us going. It's his victory. It's Christ himself. That is the reason that we never give up. So Peter, wrapping up his letter. You can only imagine the emotion just just rolling through his mind as he's writing this and coming to a conclusion. You can only imagine the emotion of the recipients of this letter who are receiving it and reading it. Who have been persecuted because of their faith, because of their choice to follow Jesus and stand firm in His truth. So Peter now gives four final encouragements for Christians living in that non-Christian world. The first thing he tells us, and this applies just as much as us today as it did then, is be humble. Be humble. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to go back and see what was just previously said. So look back at the end of verse 5. What did Peter say? He said at the end of verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So then in verse 6 he says, Therefore, humble yourselves. That makes sense if God opposes the proud and gives grace to only the humble. But it's worth asking, why is that the case? Why would God only give grace to the humble? I mean, God is a God of grace. He's a gracious God. Why doesn't He give grace? In this salvific way to all people, right? That's a good question worth asking. Why does humility seem to be necessary as a prerequisite for attaining and getting and receiving His grace? Well, it's worth asking that because the whole point, the whole point of our salvation is that we don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes to be reconciled with God the Father. Every human by nature is a sinner, right? I mean, it doesn't take long to figure that out, right? If you have little kids, it doesn't take very long (laughs) into their early life to figure out, you are a sinner, right? You are not obeying me. So we see this. All of us, by nature, are sinners. And our sin, here's the bad news, our sin actually separates us from having a relationship with God. Our sin separates us from God. And the even worse news is that there's nothing we can do to climb our way out of that. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. There's nothing we can do to get back, so to speak, or to close that gap between us and God, no matter how good we try to be. So guess what's required? Guess what's required for this great divide to be closed? Humility. Humility is the key. You see, Jesus Christ humbled himself, right? He humbled himself, and he died in our place for our sins. So that God the Father would forgive us of our sins. And all because of Jesus paying the penalty that we should have paid as our substitute before God. You see, so our salvation is all Christ. It's not, it's not partly me and then add in some good moral effort, right? And when you kind of mix that all together, God says, you know, I think I'll save Andrew. I think I'll, think I'll bring him to heaven. He's, he's tried really hard. That's not it. It's not that I got halfway, right? I was running the marathon of life and I just got tired and I tried really hard to please God and everybody else and make everyone think... That I had my life nice and neat and packaged and well put together, and then I just kind of gave up and or you know floundered towards the end of my life, but God picked me up and carried me on, on to heaven. That's not either that's not it either. Our salvation is not some of me and then some of God, or some of God and then some of me. It is all Christ from start to finish. It's all Him. From beginning to end, he is the author of my salvation. Why? Because we were dead in our sins, Scripture says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. But Christ revives us. Spiritually speaking, you might as well have been at the most uh, deepest point of the ocean. Just dead. A corpse. Spiritually speaking, that was you. But Christ, because of his love for you, pulled you up out of that water and revives your soul and gives you a new life in fact you are a now a new creature in Christ the scriptures say so it's all Christ he transforms us so this whole salvation thing it really doesn't speak very kindly of us at first does it do you see why humility is required Humility is required to come to Christ because you have to recognize and realize and admit who you really are without Him. A corpse. And nobody really wants to say that. But it forces us to reckon with how utterly depraved and sinful we actually are. In other words, it takes a lot of humility to realize that and confess that. So here's the problem, though. Pride... Our pride, thinking we can get God or, or be good enough to get God to love us, right? That pride and our own accomplishments and abilities, that prevents faith. So pride prevents faith, whereas humility proves faith. Pride prevents faith, whereas humility proves it. And we must think of ourselves this way. We must realize this about ourselves in order to truly be saved and reconciled to God. So in light of that great saving truth, Peter's basically saying here, live out that truth in your lives as exiles on this earth. Be humble. But then he moves on, and I want us to focus on the rest of verse 6 here. The second truth Peter is sharing with us and encouragement he gives us is to be comforted. So be humble. Understand the purpose and how you were saved, but also be comforted. Look what he says again in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore... And here's the key phrase here, under the mighty hand of God. So, so we humble ourselves, we admit our need for a Savior because we're sinfully wicked, but we also do that under His hand. right? We, we humble ourselves under His mighty hand, it says. So as our humility proves our faith is real and genuine, we live that out under this mighty hand of God. In other words, we live under His authority. We live under his control. And ironically, Peter says this is how one day you will be exalted, right? When Christ returns, he will lift you up. So yes, you are humbling yourself now, but there's an eternal reward where you will be glorified in your glorified body, right? You will be in heaven reigning with Christ forever. That day is to come. But for now, we are comforted by this fact that God's mighty hand is with us, and we're living under it. But now here's, here's the thing I want to point out. You see, in Scripture, God's mighty hand is a reference to His power, right? That's an analogy for the power of God, which can be a very comforting thought that God is all-powerful, right? That can be comforting. But the thought of an all-powerful God is only comforting if that all-powerful God is also good. It's only comforting if He has our best interests in mind, right? Because otherwise, otherwise He may be some kind of evil dictator who's all-powerful, if He's not good, right? Look Look at what Peter says next in verse 7. He says, "...casting all your anxieties on Him because..." He cares for you. So we recognize God's power, right? Look at that. Don't miss this. We can can trust God with our lives and to deal with our anxieties because of his mighty hand that cares for us. Because of his power and his love and care. You see, it would be one thing if God was all-powerful but didn't care right? Like some kind of evil dictator, as I mentioned. But it would also be another thing if God cared but was not all powerful. (laughs) Then he would just be a weak friend who can't really help you but loves you. But because he is both, as we live in light of that truth humbly, our pride and our anxieties begin to melt away. I just finished reading uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my kids. One consequence of that is that now I am regularly turned into a statue randomly around the house, (laughs) which is fun at first. (laughs) kind of gets old pretty fast, right? So here's the thing, though. In the story, the character, the little girl Lucy, if you're familiar with the story, she's she's finding out for the first time about this great lion named Aslan. And, And she's with Mr. and Ms. Beaver, right? And so she's asking the beavers, She's asking Mr. Beaver, well, Aslan, this, this lion, is he, is he safe? And the beaver, Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, safe? Well, no, he isn't safe. But he's good. You see, that's exactly how we must realize. That's exactly what we must believe about God. It's when we truly believe this, about God that we can bring our anxieties to him is he safe well that's the wrong question he's all powerful but is he good absolutely he is good we can bring our anxieties therefore to him and he can actually do something he can deal with them in a careful tender way trusting we can trust him that he will help us through this Most, you know, not all of our anxieties, but a lot of them are uh, because of our own pride. We want to think that we can attain things in this life that will give us peace and happiness. We think we're good enough, right? And so we devote our lives to work or money or possessions, or we devote our lives to relationships, thinking that they will fulfill our deepest needs in our heart and soul it's our pride that actually is the root of a lot of our anxiety because you know what we usually grow most anxious about things when those idols those things those good things in this life we turn into ultimate things idols we usually grow most anxious when those idols are threatened to be taken away from us so whether it be our health or our relationship or our money we grow anxious when those things are threatened we fear losing them. And we falsely think that, our true, that they are our true sources of peace and happiness. And we look to them to give us what only Christ can truly give us. But not only our idols. I think even in Peter's day as he's writing this, just you know, for Christians living in a non-Christian world, that's going to cause us to be anxious sometimes. Because we're going to be thinking about the conversations and the situations and the temptations that face us as believers in this world. But in all of that, regardless of what the root of our anxiety may be, in all of that, what do we do? Peter says, humble yourselves under the hand of an all-powerful God who created this universe with words. That God loves you. He cares about every single detail of your life. In fact, He knows what you're going through because he went through it himself. He humbled himself so that he could care for your soul. He bled and died so that he could help you through the most darkest, difficult days of your life. Do you see the great comfort in that? Our God is a comforting God. Not only is there great comfort In God's power and His care, there's also great motivation there. And that's what Peter tells us next. we got to be humble. Let's be comforted by His power and His care. But let's also be bold. Because we have His power in us and protecting us and caring for us, now we can be bold in this world. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. He continues on. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Be bold, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, as Christians, we can think clearly with vigilance. Because Jesus has rescued us from the blinding illusions of sin, right? That's what sin is. It's all an illusion that just makes you think that it's going to give you happiness or makes you think that you can control it, that it's not so bad or it's not so dangerous. So I'm very proud to say that this weekend, uh, I finally got the chance to eat at Clark's Fish Camp for the first time. Now, if you've never been to Clark's, there's a reason why everyone just chuckled, okay? Uh, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, food was great, but imagine a zoo where all the animals are dead and they serve great food. That's, that's about it. That's pretty much it, right? Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, some of you are like, Whoa. Just go check it out. I promise. The food was great. Okay. Uh, Props to them. But here's the thing. So I walk in and after the initial astonishment of all the animals, giraffe, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, right? Um, I, I see this huge tank, right? So there's this big glass tank in the middle of the restaurant with a really big live alligator in it. Okay. That's how we do things down here in Florida, right? So there's this big tank with this live alligator in the middle of the restaurant, and his face, his snout, you know, is right up to the glass. And so, of course, I go over there, and I'm just putting my face right in front of his face. You know, and I'm just, I'm amazed. I really am. I don't know that I've ever been that close in terms of inches, right, to a real breathing alligator. I mean, I've seen him at the zoo before, but not that close, right? And so I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, you know, Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be so hard to to tackle this guy, right? Uh, <laughs> in fact, you know, it was, I wasn't that scared, I guess. And in fact, just to kind of prove it to myself, I had gator tail for dinner. So there you go. Yep, yep. But there's an illusion there. It was a good gator tail, by the way. Pride. There's an illusion there, right? You see as long as that gator is behind the glass, as long as I can eat him in my own comfort at my table, there's this illusion that I could master this beast. He doesn't seem so dangerous. But let me tell you for one hot second, if that gator got out of that tank, I'm the first one in the car. Like, Christy, sorry, see you later, right? <laughs> Gone. You see, here's what God's grace does, y'all. God's grace... It it removes the illusion that maybe sin is not so dangerous. It removes the illusion that sin is something that you can master and you can control on your own timetable as if it were behind a protective glass. God's grace allows us to be sober-minded and to be watchful, as Peter says in verse 8. So now, here's the thing. Because God has given us His truth and His wisdom. Now, we know what evil actually looks like. God the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom through His Word to know what is good and what is righteous in this world versus what is not. To know what is helpful for us versus what is not. To know what is truly going to benefit us and others versus what will destroy us and weaken or destroy our relationships with others. You could say it this way. way. The truth has set you free. The truth of Christ has set us free from those anxiety-inducing idols that slave us to them. We can see the devil's schemes. Yes, he's like a lion roaring around, Peter says, seeking someone to devour. He is after you. There's a target on your back because you are a Christian, because you live in this non-Christian world and you have raised your hand and you have declared as you were baptized in the waters, you said, you know what? Hey, I'm on the side of Christ. I follow Jesus. And so now, and I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just trying to tell you there's a target. There's a target on your back because Satan is this lion. He is roaming around. He is seeking a way to destroy you. He's trying to destroy your marriage. He's trying to destroy your kids. He's trying to destroy all of your relationships. He will do whatever it takes to keep your life from reflecting the glory of God. And he's going to do that through addiction. He's going to do that through brokenhearted relationships. He's going to do it in all kinds of neat and various ways because he's a pretty creative guy. But the truth, the truth of Christ removes the blinders to these lies and these schemes. And so now we can see, we can see the devil's schemes and the attacks for what they are. If we're living humbly, if we're thinking rightly and just letting God's Word be absorbed into our hearts and our minds, and we're being watchful, and we're aware of these challenges, as Peter says. So what do we do? Peter says, resist. We boldly resist this. We give no opportunity to the devil to wreak havoc in our lives. Paul said it this way, and very simply, in Ephesians 4.27, look what he said. He said, give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity Listen, some of you are giving too many many opportunities to Satan to come into your life and wreak havoc. Some of you are teetering on the edge of the cliff in all kinds of tempting tempting ways and, and you're so close to ruining your life and you need to pull back. You need to return to Christ and His love for you. The God of all power who cares for you. Peter says resist and stand firm be bold you've got god's power and his truth inside of you and he cares for you cast your anxieties whatever you are struggling with and whatever you are dealing with whatever is weighing you down don't give up cast those anxieties on the one who can carry them on the one who can crucify them for you this is the call to all christians all exiles Of all time and every place in this world. So as Peter reminds us, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling in this great fight. And like them, in our own context, we must be bold. But lastly, before he closes out this letter, Peter reminds us to be assured. To be assured. Look what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then Peter closes out his letter with some final greetings to some friends. He says, by Silvanus, You know, it's interesting to note that when Peter refers to she who is at Babylon, that that's actually kind of secret language there, uh, that he's some code, if you will. He's actually, he's not talking about a a woman in the city of Babylon. (laughs) He's talking about the church in Rome. He's referring to Rome as Babylon. And why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, the Babylonians captured Israel, and they made them, they forced them to be exiles. And so Peter is now writing and saying, "Our our fellow brothers and sisters in Rome, just like when the Babylonians captured Israel years and years ago, our fellow brothers and sisters who are living for Christ in the Roman pagan city, they are exiles like you. Pray for them. Know that you're in this together. And he says, after you have suffered a little while, You see, Peter's acknowledging that all of us, no matter what city in this world we live in as Christians, we are going to suffer. We're going to suffer for a little while. In other words, it's inevitable. But it's also temporary. And it's also necessary. And why is it necessary? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer in Romans 5. As he's writing to those Christians living in that pagan city of Rome, here's what he says in verses 3-5. through He says, not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Think about that. The more you live for Christ in this world, the more you're going to want to give up. In a way. If you only listen to yourself, and you only listen to your flesh, and your weak emotions, then yes, you're going to want to give up. But what Paul and Peter are saying to us is that our sufferings... If we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we cast our anxieties on Him continually, then what what are our difficult situations going to do? They're actually going to build endurance in us. So you may not be able to run the marathon right now, but you will be able to finish. Because suffering produces endurance. And he says, verse 4, endurance produces character. What is this long, hard journey of the Christian life doing in your heart? God is using every circumstance and every situation that you are facing today to transform who you are. He is shaping you and He is molding you to be and look more like Him. Endurance produces character and character. When you understand that the hand of God is on you, when you understand that He loves you, and that you can cast all your anxieties on Him, what does that produce Your character's changing and it's growing to become more Christ-like. And so your heart begins to fill with hope, Paul says. In verse 5, hope does not put you to shame. Because God's love, His love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. Man, you can be humble. You can be comforted by that. And you can be bold because of this. And you can ultimately be assured that there is hope in this life no matter how hard it may become, and no matter how dark the evil one who is out for you may try to make your life, that because there is a faithful, powerful God who cares, there is hope for you. The God of all grace who owns us is leading us to His glory. And He will personally finish what He started. He is committed to you. Look at this. Philippians 1.6 Paul said, I'm sure of this. This might be my favorite verse in the Bible right here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus will finish what he has started in you. Amen? And there's no doubt about it. There would be some doubt if he was not all-powerful. There would be lots of doubt if he did not care. But he is both. Peter, look what he says again in verse 10. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself you see that? He's not sending angels to do this. He's not sending someone himself. He is personally vested. He is personally going to do this. Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We can never give up. How could we? How could we give up? We can never give up on the God of all grace. You know why? Because He will never give up on you. Restoring, confirming, strengthening, establishing us as His people for His glory to live under His rule and reign, His dominion forever and ever No longer, no longer as exiles, but as the people of God in our true home. I want to say to you today that if you feel like giving up, I don't know what each of you are facing personally, And I know how it is. You may be the only person who knows what you're facing. But I want to tell you today that if you are here and you feel like just giving up, and that could be in the form of quitting church. That could be in the form of giving up, spending time with God and His Word and in prayer. It could be in the form of just giving up, trying to be the spiritual leader of your home, fathers, husbands. It could be just giving up in terms of trying to witness to the coworker at work. Whatever it may be, wherever you are tempted to say, you know what? Forget it. I'm done. I don't think I can do this anymore. I just want you to know that there is an all-powerful God who is asking you to cast to cast that anxiety on Him. Let Him bear that burden. Let Him carry that weight for you. Because ultimately, He carried the greatest weight on His back on a cross. And He hung and bled to set you free. So you don't have to be a slave to your sin. You don't have to be disillusioned by any scheme of Satan in this world. The truth has set you free. And you need to believe that, Christian. Live in light of that great truth today. If you're here today and you know that the Lord, not me, but the Lord is speaking to you right now, I want to encourage you to find me or Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Jonathan or any, anybody here at this church to talk to. Find somebody to talk to after the service today. We'll be out here. I'll be out in the cafe And come by and say, hey, let me pray for you. Let us know what it is, wherever it is that you feel like you're about to give up. I want you to know that the church, the people of God are here for you. And we want to come alongside you in this great battle. We want to be brothers and sisters in arms who can fight alongside one another, even in the darkest of days. Never, ever give up in that regard. Because Christ is with us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so thankful that you have your mighty hand, your all-powerful mighty hand on us. And it is not just a hand of power, but it is a hand that cares. Jesus, you are personally interested. You are personally concerned with the meticulous details of our lives because every little second of our life matters. Everything, every thought and every word and every action matters because eternity is at stake. And Lord, we believe and we trust that in your goodness, in these difficult challenges, these sufferings, this persecution that we may face as believers in a non-believing world. We trust, though, in the midst of all of this, that you, as the all-powerful, loving and caring God, are shaping our lives in a way that will ultimately bring glory to your name. And that will be for our good And that will serve as a light to those who do not understand and do not know you and are struggling and lost. So Lord, for those who are here today and they just feel like giving up, Lord, would you give them strength right now? Would you give them peace and would you give them hope in a way that they have not felt in a long time? Would you, Lord, revive their souls. Make them whole again. Lord, give them humility. Give them comfort. Give them boldness and give them assurance. Fill their hearts with hope. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us this way. That you suffered and bled so that we could live. That even though we were unlovable, you loved us by giving your life for us. So Lord, it is your death and it is your resurrection that we proclaim in this place today as your people, as our only hope, the great hope that we have. So thank you, Jesus, that we will not be exiles forever, that we will live with you in perfect peace. But Lord, help us in this temporary time on this earth. May you give us the grace we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.